0: has influenced a huge amount of California, because he just invests into, he's from Gateway Seminary, he invests into students, pastors, so his influence runs all up and down California. His influence runs on me, and it runs on you guys, so if you don't like something, blame him. No, (laughs) anyways, it's Paul Kelly, love to have you, Paul, glad you're here. Friends, I, I, I am just so delighted to get to be with you guys again. It's, it's always so fun to be able to be in this church, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Thanks so much for inviting me, Jonathan, and, uh, and, and I appreciate all the kind words. I'm not sure that they're deserved, but I appreciate them anyway. Um, I, I don't know how you guys approach your personal time in the Word uh, with God. Um, for, for me, the way that it tends to work is I tend to pick a book of the Bible And then I just kind of camp out there, you know, I don't really rush to get through it and move on to something else. I don't read through it quickly. I sort of just try to soak in the Word, you know, and so I'll read the same passage, sometimes over four or five days in a row, just to try to make sure that I understand what it's saying. Well, the last few months, I've been in the book of Esther, and that's a little strange for me. I'm kind of a New Testament guy. I kind of spend most of my time in the New Testament and lean into that most of the time, but... I just got intrigued, felt like God was leading me to go look at the book of Esther again, and I just got intrigued by the book and just kept reading through, thinking about, praying about it. And i got to tell you, folks, I hope you don't mind, but I just want to share with you what I feel like that I've been learning from from this book, the book of Esther. I hope that's okay. Uh, One of the things I've got to tell you, though, is that the story of Esther is much darker than I think I ever realized. That, that, that it's much darker than what my Sunday school teachers used to talk about in this you know, nice story about this woman who becomes queen and, and you know, gets to, to reign you know, because God, God... All that stuff is true, but, but the story really has sort of a dark edge. One of the things that's strange about the book of Esther. And you you guys probably know this, but one of the things that's really strange is that it is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God. How can a book in the Bible never get around to saying anything about God? One of the benefits of of being uh, employed, of teaching at at Gateway Seminary is that you have really, really smart people around you all the time. So I have a friend named Greg Watson who is uh, uh, an Old Testament professor and and one our associate dean. And so when I have questions about anything related to the Old Testament, I go to Greg and I say, So tell me what you think about this. So we were having lunch one day and I was like, Watson, what's the deal about Esther never mentioning the name of God? And he said, that is interesting, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, that's a professor answer. That doesn't help me at all. Yeah, but he says, he says, what do you think the theme of the Book of Esther is? Well, now that's an interesting question. And I went back and started reading through the book again and again, thinking, what, what is what is this book really talking about? And a book that. Doesn't mention God at all. I really believe that the theme of this book is that God always is working on behalf of His people. I I think that this is a book that's all about the sovereignty of God, which is hilarious because it's a book that never mentions God. Well, hopefully, we can kind of get into it now. I don't have time to to sort of dig deeply into everything that Esther has to say, but I did want to kind of catch you up. We're going to get into chapter 4, but I did want to kind of catch you up with the story. I know you guys are familiar with the story, but maybe you haven't remembered it. Maybe it's been a while like it had been for me, but since you've been into it, the, the story actually doesn't start out with Esther. It starts out with King Ahasuerus. Now, Ahasuerus probably was the Jewish name for Xerxes. At least that's what what an awful lot of the the commentators tend to to think. You know, if you try to blend the history together, it seems like Ahasuerus would have been King Xerxes. Um, And so, you know, if if you're using the NIV Bible, they just call him Xerxes and assume that that's the case. But Ahasuerus is the name that the Jews called him. And, and, And Ahasuerus was the king of... Persia at the time. Um, he was in a, in, a, in a city of Susa. still exists in western Iran, not far from the Iraqi border. Um, but Susa was his citadel. It was where his palace was. Um, he had taken over the Persian empire, you remember, had expanded over into the Babylonian empire and had basically taken over the ba- Babylon and everything. So all of those Jews who had been in captivity in Babylon, We're suddenly in captivity in Persia. And that's where we find Esther. That that King Ahasuerus is in his citadel, in the city of Susa, Persian city in western Persia. And he's having a big party. Has all of the dignitaries there. And he calls for his queen, Queen Vashti, to come to his party to be a part of it. Now, I don't know why. But Queen Vashti just absolutely refused to come. Uh, Maybe, you know, she was really busy with other things. Maybe she didn't want to come be paraded around in front of all of Ahasuerus' guests, you know, in, in front of him. Maybe she had a headache. I don't know why, but she absolutely refuses to come. And while you'd think, you know, like Queen Elizabeth, you know, if she didn't want to do something, she just doesn't do it and it's no big deal, right? But we're talking Persia, ancient Persia here. And she just didn't have the right to refuse to come to her husband, to to the king. As a matter of fact, you know, all of the women in that area were subjugated to their husbands, but certainly to their kings. And this became a big issue, not just for Ahasuerus, but for all of the the, uh, dignitaries in the kingdom. And so he just banished her from his own presence um, from, it took her out of the role of being queen of the Persian Empire and just, just refused. Frankly, Vashti was fortunate that she wasn't put to death. Well, the, the advisors to, to Ahasuerus came back and said, King, why don't we start a search for a new queen? And let's do it this way. Let's go across all of the provinces of your kingdom and let's bring together all the beautiful women we can find, put them in your harem, and then you can choose among them the one that pleases you most and she can be your your, your queen. Being a part of a harem wasn't a great advantage to you, you know? Uh, that, That women essentially became the property of the king, um, th- that they could not leave the harem, that they could not have a, a, take a husband or something like that other than the king, that they, they were subject, they were only subject to the king, that, that no other man could touch them. So, so being a part of the harem wasn't a good thing for these women, but the, the, the officials went out and started to gather women, beautiful women from all over the place. Esther happens to live in the city of Susa, in the citadel, and she's taken to the harem at this time. We don't know exactly how that happens. A friend of mine says, oh, well, you know, Mordecai gave her up to this this life. And I said, I don't know. The Bible doesn't really say that. That somehow she's identified because of her beauty and is taken into the harem of the king. I got to tell you, this was not what Esther's what Esther's mama would have wanted for her. Uh, she She would not have wanted her essentially to be uh, enslaved in this harem to King Ahasuerus, it, it, it was—it was really a dark and difficult and horrible kind of thing that happened to her. And she was living with her uncle Mordecai. Um, her, her parents had died. They were taken into captivity um, and brought into Babylonian captivity and then taken over by Persia, as was Mordecai. We don't know about Esther. Maybe she was taken in, into captivity and brought there from Israel. Maybe not. Maybe she was born in captivity and grew up there. That's very possible based on you know, the dates that we have here. But she's being raised by her uncle or she's being you know lifted up by her uncle, Mordecai. And Mordecai is mortified at what's happened to Esther, that he goes every day to the palace and starts going to try to check on her. He can't go in and visit her, you know, I mean, no man is allowed to go into the harem and see the women, so he can't go in and visit her. But every day he goes again and again to the palace just to try to get some kind of a word of what's happened to his, 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 his surrogate daughter, his niece, um, in this whole situation, now the crazy thing about this whole story is that Esther goes into the harem and the the eunuch who is in charge of the women suddenly just sees her and gives her this favor that he he favors her that he he likes her that he thinks that she 's valuable that he sees her and gives her favor and not only that but of the palace of the palace servants that are there working with young women give Esther favor but and this is this is kind of a funny thing and this is one of the reasons why I say that I think the theme of this whole book is about the sovereignty of God see in, in the story of Joseph he's taken into uh, he's sold into slavery goes into Potiphar's house what happens he gains the favor of Potiphar and becomes head over over this whole thing why because God does that you know, and then he goes to jail because of the whole situation with Potiphar's wife right. He goes to jail, and then what happens? He gains favor with the jailer. Why does that happen? Because God does this. You know, and then he gets released by the king of Egypt, and the king lifts him up to this high position. Why does he do that? Because of God's God's favor, because of God's work to, to bless him and to give him the favor of other folks. We see the same kind of thing with Moses, right? Moses is a little baby that he's born at a time where Hebrew babies are being killed. And they, his mama puts him in the, in the Nile River, lets him float down the river. And the princess, I mean, the, the daughter of the man who's trying to kill all the Hebrew babies, pulls him out of the what is that going to do? I mean, if you're a, if you're a mama and you want to see somebody get, find your baby, it's not going to be the daughter of the man who's trying to kill all the Hebrew babies, but she gives the baby her favor and chooses to take her into, into her life and into her court and to raise her as her own. Why does that happen? Because God does that. You, you guys understand what I'm saying? That if God had not been moving in this situation, that we would not see Esther favored in this way. Now, I'm not trying to dismiss the situation because Esther is a young virgin girl in a horrible situation. But in the middle of that horror, in the middle of this horrible horrible thing that's happened in her life, God gives her the favor of the people around her. For months she receives beauty treatments, is fed the best food and all that kind of stuff. I don't know what was given as beauty at that time. I don't know if she was wearing all the makeup or if, you know, they were trying to fatten her up. I don't know what was given as beauty at that time. But Esther is improved in terms of her looks, you know, and they take her in to King Ahasuerus. Horrible situation for her. But somehow in the middle of this horrible situation, the king shows her incredible favor. Why? The Bible doesn't tell us that it's because God did that. But that's the implication that God was at work even in that situation, even though this situation was horrible. He decides that this is the woman he's going to name as his queen. Well, the scene changes, right? And then we move to this man named Haman. His father was called an Agagite. I looked around trying to figure out where the Agagites came from. You know, what was an Agagite, you know? Is this a people group, you know, that was there in Persia or something like that? No. So I go back and I talk to my friend Greg Watson, and he goes, You know, some people believe that the Agagites were actually the descendants of Agag, who was the king... That's fun. (laughs) The Agagites were we're, we're the descendants of the king of the uh, Amalekites. You guys remember the Amalekites. Saul went in, invaded Amalek destroyed everybody, and he brought this, the king, Agag, out of that, out of that situation and, and held on to him, didn't put him to the sword like he was supposed to, and Samuel comes along and, and says, what on earth have you done, Saul? You, you've, you've kept this, uh, these, these sheep and you've kept this king, Agag, and so he actually puts king Agag to the, to, the, to the sword. Well, apparently, there's at least some speculation that Agag was not his name, but his title, so, so like the king of Egypt was pharaoh you know that the king of Amalek apparently was Agag the Agag So when it talks about Haman's father being an Agagite very possible that he was the king of Amalek at the time when The Babylonians came in, took over Amalek, and took into captivity those kind of people. And if not the king, very likely was a descendant of the king of Amalek. So he's already kind of an enemy of the Jews. And I think that's kind of important as we get into the story. Haman is lifted up by the by 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 Ahasuerus. you know, the king of Hasserus, king of Persia. For some reason, he really likes likes Haman, and he he brings him into as one of his most trusted advisors. He gives him his signet ring, which means that if he signs a law and marks the law, that that law is is done. You know, that it has the same effect or the same power as what Pharaoh did. He he. He's uh, put together a proclamation that if if Haman went walking through the palace, that everyone in the palace was to bow down to him. Well, you guys remember that Mordecai is going to the palace trying to find out something about Esther every day. And so the, the expectation is that he's going to be bowing to Haman when he comes by. Well... The Jews always had a problem, especially when they're in captivity, they always had a problem with bowing to anyone but Jesus. You guys remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? That they created this great idol of the king. They draw that, bring that king by, you know, and everybody bows down to it, you know, except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who absolutely refused to it, and they end up in the fiery furnace. You know, thank you for the song. And we, you know, God chooses to save them out of that. We're in the same situation with, uh, with Mordecai and, 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 and Haman that he refuses. Well, the Bible doesn't say it's because of his faith in God. It certainly says that about the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the implication is that Mordecai will not bow down because he trusts in God. Maybe because Haman is just such a prideful man, Or maybe because Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites who already hated the Jews. But in either case, he decides to take out his own vengeance, not just on Mordecai, but on every Jew in the Persian Empire. So all of these Jews that had been brought out of captivity into Babylon that were now all a part of the Persian Empire and all of the children that they had had while they were in in captivity are suddenly going to be put to death. Haman works this out with the king, seals it with the ring. It's done. On one day, In about a a year later, they've they've spread the word out. They're spreading the word out. And on that one day, every Jew in the kingdom is going to be put to the sword know If you guys are aware i've I, I spent a little bit of time in, uh, in Armenia, and one of the things that the Armenians talk about fairly often is the Armenian genocide in one thousand nine hundred and fifteen where the Ottomans who had come over to come in and taken over Turkey just went through on, on april the twenty fourth and began just a systematic extermination of Arme- the Armenian people living in, uh, in all of all of Turkey that dark evil kind of of, of thing is what we're talking about. That on one day, there's going to be this outcry of every Jew that's known in the whole kingdom being put to death. It's the most horrible thing that I can imagine. I, it, 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 it would even, the, 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 the situation in Armenia with the Armenian genocide would pale in comparison to that. The situation of, of the Jews being slaughtered by, by, uh, by Hitler really isn't, isn't as, as, as devious or as, as difficult as this situation was. This is a horrible, dark situation. So it's no surprise that when Mordecai finds out about it, not just that his life is threatened, but the lives of his entire people, not just in Susa, but all over the empire across what was, what's now Iraq and Iran, all of that empire, that every Jew is going to be put to the death on one He puts on sackcloth and ashes, which was the way that you uh, indicated uh, uh, mourning. Continued to go to the temple, bowing down, wailing. We would think calling out to God to do something, although the book of Esther never tells us he called out to God. Esther gets word of that. My guess is one of the servants of the king sees Mordecai, knows that he's her uncle, brings word to her. And that's kind of where we pick the story up. Um, If you got a Bible, take a look at... (laughs) We're a long way in before reading the Bible, aren't we? Uh, We we pick up the story in uh, verse 9. Now before this, this man named named Hathic, one of the king's servants, had gone out and spoken to, to, uh, to Mordecai. He came back to Esther And in verse 9 it says, Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. All of the things about the genocide. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death Unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their life, but thirty days have passed since I was called to go into the king. You guys get you guys get what's what's going on here, right? That we have um, we have uh, Phil. Is that the water? <laughs> I'm moving around too much. We have. Um, Mordecai coming back and saying, Esther, do something. You're the queen. Do something in this situation. And she says, Here's the situation. Here's what it's like in the palace. Anyone, not just me, anyone that goes to the king without being bid, without being invited, is immediately put to death. And the only way that that, that that can be spared is if the king himself, with the golden scepter that he walks around with, points that golden scepter at that person, and then that sense of grace allows them to survive, to live. And she says, if I go before the king, I haven't been summoned in 30 days. I don't know what the king's thinking. I don't know if he has any interest in seeing me. I don't know where I am with that whole situation. If I go before the king, the chances are very good that I'll never have an opportunity to talk with him, let alone to beg him on behalf of our people to do anything, because I'll immediately be put to death. That's the situation that we're talking about. Make sense? Okay, moving on. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, You alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. You hear what Mordecai is saying to her. He's saying God is sovereign. He is going to act on behalf of his people. If you choose to stay silent, you are not going to be the one who intercedes for his people. In, In fact, you may end up dying yourself, but God will do something. For some reason, Mordecai never mentions God. But that's the implication of what he's saying. There is something that's happening. God is not going to allow His people just to perish. He's not going to allow this genocide just to take all of these people away. He is going to do something. But maybe the reason why you've endured this difficulty, this frustration, this horror, maybe all of this being taken into the harem, taken into the king, maybe all of this, is because God intends to use you in this time, in this situation, to change the fate of the Jews. Okay, moving on. Verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, every Jew in the capital, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or nights... Night or day, I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all the instructions of Esther. She, she sends message back to Mordecai again and says, I am going to go before the king, but... Before I do that, we're going to declare a fast. We are all going to be fasting for three days. Now, why would they fast? They're subjugating themselves to God, and they're praying that God will choose to act in this situation. And for some reason, the, Bible, the book never mentions that. But when, it, when the book talks about them fasting, it's not just talking about them doing without food as if somehow being hungry is going to make a difference in her situation, it's a way to plead with God to intercede in this situation. And and, and it's kind of wild to me that it's not just Esther's people who are doing this, but it's her servants, probably not Jews at all, it's her servants who are coming and fasting and praying with her, hoping that somehow she'll be able to do something. And and, and I love what she says, if I perish, I perish. It reminds me of what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when they were going into the fire, where they said, you know, even if God doesn't intercede, know this, we will not bow to your idol. Okay, three more verses. Chapter five. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes And stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. And he held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. (laughs) This is such an amazing picture. That Esther goes, and, and she gets all dolled up, you know, puts on the crown, the royal robes, you know. She tries to get looking where she's looking as good as she can. She goes, and, and she stands, not in, the, not in his palace room, but in the hallway outside of it, in the doorway, so that he looks out and sees her there. And if he does nothing, the guards come and take her away and kill her. That's, that's all there is. But when he sees her, he favors her. Why? Because... God gives Esther the favor of the king once again. And he points his scepter at her. She comes and touches. The tip of the scepter. I, I, I looked up to you know in several places to try to figure out what does this mean. You know what what does it mean that she goes and touches the scepter. You know I thought maybe this was some kind of ancient you know Persian custom or something like that. And and it seems like that to some extent that it was that when someone would come and touch the scepter, it was a little bit like you know in, in the in the old English days when they would go and kiss the ring of the king or something like that. It was a way of acknowledging the, the, the graciousness of the king for allowing he, her into his presence. That she touches the scepter and. Then he offers to do whatever she wants to do up, until, up to half the kingdom. Well, I wish we had time to finish the story because there's so much other stuff that goes on with this whole thing. But the thing that I, that I want you to take away from this is it's certainly that God did something to move in Esther's life here. But at the end of this story, she is still in the harem. She still belongs to the king. She still has, I mean, maybe a softer bed since she's the queen, but she still is not living the life that a young Jewish woman would have chosen for herself. But God interceded to preserve her life, and I think that even beyond that, it's because of what he wanted to do through her to accomplish with all of his people that the genocide that was supposed to have fallen to the Jews actually ends up being a destruction of all of the enemies of the Jews. Uh, The Jews celebrate the festival of Purim every year, still. Pur, the word pur in in, in Hebrew actually means lot. You know, like when they would cast lots, you know, the, the soldiers sitting at the feet of Jesus were casting lots for his clothes, that kind of stuff. When they would cast lots... Essentially, the, the picture is that the lot fell to the Jews, but that God was unwilling for the lot to fall to them for their destruction, and He cast the lot instead to the enemies of the Jews, and that they were destroyed instead. God chose to use Esther for the salvation of his people. There's, there's this wonderful picture. In the, in the throne room, that, that I'm not sure is exactly intended, but it seems like it should be if it's not, that, that, that the king certainly wasn't a type of, of Christ. He certainly wasn't the kind of person you would expect Jesus to be. But he does represent a picture of what happens in our lives. That as Esther came before him, oh my soul, The Old Testament says that if we come before the living God, if we see his face, that we'll die. And yet, Christ extends through the cross the golden scepter to us. So that if we just come up, you know, in John, John says, if you just look to the snake that's lifted up, you know, if we look, if we just come up to touch the scepter, to acknowledge that God has allowed us into His presence, to, to place our trust and our faith and our hope in Him, to allow our lives to be His, that He pronounces salvation on us, not just here, but for all of eternity. But I think the message for us in the book of Esther is a little beyond that. It's a little more than the fact that God chooses to save us like He saved Esther in the throne room. I think the message of Esther is that when we face all kinds of life circumstances, that God can use those very circumstances to put us in exactly the right place to carry out His redemptive purpose. Friends, yes, God is going to work everything out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes, but that does not mean that everything that happens to you is good. We will experience difficulty in this life. We'll experience problems. We'll experience opposition. We'll have people that hate us, that hurt us, that seek to do wrong to us. We will experience those kinds of things. And yes, our hope is in Christ that in the middle of those circumstances that He'll act on our behalf. But Esther says, if I perish, I perish. If God doesn't choose to act on my behalf, I still want my life to count for God's redemption. It may be that the worst circumstances of your life put you in exactly the place that God needs you in order to accomplish the purposes that He has for you. And whether your circumstances are difficult or frustrating or problematic or not, who knows but what God has put you in the situation you're in today because He desires to bring to Himself the multitudes here in Walnut and here in California and here in the United States that are living without the knowledge of Christ, without the knowledge that God has already (laughs) extended His golden scepter to them and if they but touch the scepter, that He'll welcome them into His presence. That maybe the circumstances that God has placed you in are exactly where He wants you in order to accomplish those kinds of redemptive purposes. Let me pray with you. Jesus, we don't like facing hardship. We don't like facing difficulty. We don't like it when we have to to, to deal with opposition, with frustration, with people who dislike us, hate us, ignore us, push us aside. But more than we hate those things, we love you. And we desire to be used by you for your redemptive redemptive mission in this world. And like Esther, we long to make a difference. And if we perish, we perish. But help us to perish because we're seeking to serve you with everything that we are and with everything that we have. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.